we were singing the hymn and I missed a verse a bit. And Maria says, where's your glasses? <laughs> it's always encouraging, you know, when you're doing your best to try and read. But uh, I got them, I got them. So it's all, it's all good, it's all good. We're going to be taking our, um, our study this morning from John's Gospel again. If you do have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 12. We're not going to be going through the whole lot. It's only two verses that I want to be able to expound to you this morning. And John chapter 12, we're looking at verses just 23 to, to 25. So if you read with me this morning, he says there, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, that you have the words of eternal life. We thank you, dear Father, that we can trust in you for it that our souls could be trusted in your hands. Lord, I pray, dear Father, you'd be with us this morning. Open our hearts and our eyes to be able to understand and, and know your word, dear Father, for us in particular, for our own lives. I pray, dear Lord, that you'd be with me, dear Father. Hide me indeed, dear Lord, behind your cross. Calm my nerves as well, dear Father, as I bring out this wonderful passage of Scripture to my brethren here. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd um, been going through a, a set of different series as we started, uh, when we started the church. The first thing that we, that we wanted to address was the question about eternity. Does it exist? And if it does exist, what's its nature? What is it? What is eternity? Is it just a long, long, long period of time? Or does time have anything to do with it at all? And what we discovered that the Bible presents that there is no time in eternity. Eternity is the dimension in which God dwells. He can see the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. There is no time in eternity. Now, for us, we can't understand that because we live in a universe created in time. So we can't conceive of there being no time. That's why God doesn't change. If time is a series of events, events can change. God doesn't change. Our state in eternity also will not change change. Wherever we are in eternity, we are there and that will be remaining there for all eternity. Okay, So when we hear the hymn, Amazing Grace, and you, and you listen to the words and it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, and we've no less days than when we began. Okay, Well, it's a little bit wrong when you think about it because there is no time in eternity. So it can't be measured by time. So we spoke about that. We then went on and asked the question, then what is the gospel? Realising the state of man, we then asked, what is the gospel? How can man be saved? How can man be with God for all eternity? What happened? What happened at the beginning of the fall of man? So we, we touched on that and we brought out that from the very, very beginning, God had a plan to redeem mankind. The angels, unfortunately, that fell can't be redeemed. They are already immortal. They can no longer die anymore. The decision that they made, they made individually, independently, and they fell accordingly. And their time will come 
where they will be cast into the lake of fire. And they know it. They know it. And so does the devil know it. Ours, however, we have, we have this unique opportunity of life where within our lives we can make decisions respecting eternity and decisions respecting the truth of God. And it's a personal decision. It's not one that can be forced. It's not one that can be compelled in that way. It has to be personal. It has to be personal. So after bringing through that gospel and coming to the knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done for us, we then got another question to answer and that is, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Now I took the title from a book by Francis Schaeffer. Um, My message has nothing to do with his book. It's a completely different line of thought that he goes on. But I like the title. How then shall we live? Now knowing Christ, now being in him, how shall we govern our lives? Alan gave a wonderful beginning to that when he talked about the time of our life. What is this period of time that we are living in? And he brought out that great phrase where she said it's, we are living in the until. What until? Well, we are living in the until, until the Lord returns or until we are gathered unto him or until the redemption of the purchased possession of God, which is us. And we discovered in last week's message that incredibly we have two levels of hope as Christians. We have what's known as the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? The blessed hope is that pretty freaky and miraculous event where all his own are gathered together and meet the Lord in the clouds. We meet the Lord in the air. We got that from uh, 1 Thessalonians. We know that as what's called the rapture. So the rapture of the church where we meet the Lord and we see him face to face. It's the same hope that was found even in the Apostle Paul way back when he first penned Thessalonians. We know that Peter was looking for the same thing. We know the Apostle John was looking for the blessed hope. That's what that refers to. And it is unbelievable. The only thing is we discover that through the Bible, we are not the only ones that are looking for that hope or we are not the only ones that had been caught up we find the same thing happened to Enoch to Elijah neither of those saw the end of their days both of them were caught up and they went to be with the Lord that way so we have a hope in life but incredibly and this next passage that we're going to be dealing with today we also have a hope in death now death isn't a subject that we really like to dwell on too much it's just so final you know but for us for those who know Christ We have hope in life and hope in death. And it's really incredible to think about. So we have both of these elements. But understand, when I'm speaking about hope, I'm not talking about wishful thinking. I'm not thinking, I hope so. It's like, you know, when you you leave home and and, um, and, uh, and as you're driving and you turn to your wife and you say, did you turn off the oven before we left? And she says, well, yeah, I hope so. You know, it doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence, does it? You know, it could be halfway to wherever and you've got to turn around and go back and check. You know, did you lock the door? I hope I did, you know. It's almost like I think I did, but on a positive level, isn't it? That's how we use hope today. The hope in Scripture is not that hope. The hope in Scripture could be identified by Romans 8.24 as that certainty not yet seen. I hope that wind calms down. <laughs> I hope we don't get blown over. We thought about that this morning. We were lying in bed. We got this big tree held up by two straps. 
Uh, so we keep hoping that there's no wind that's going to actually break any of those straps. But uh, I'm not worried about that, of course, because I have, I have hope that I'm going to see the Lord regardless of what happens. Anyway, that's how we use, that's how I'm using hope here. I'm using hope as that absolute certainty that will come that we have to look forward to, but not yet seeing. Now, when we spoke about that blessed hope, it's something that we believe by faith, yeah? We believe it by faith. We believe in the hope of it coming. We know that it's certain, but it's not yet seen. Death is something else. Death is something else. We live with death every day. We see death on a day-to-day basis. We know that it's there. We know that it's ever-present. We know that it exists. And if death was a preacher, if death itself was a preacher, it would speak to us boldly and it would speak clearly, even daily. We know that he has the entire world as his parish. We know that he travels to every part of the globe and we know that he speaks every language His message doesn't discriminate. He preaches to the poor, he preaches to the rich, and he is just as happy to preach to all who are in between. Death has his audience with the old and with the young. Few would ever be found not in attendance when he speaks. He preaches to people of every religion, he preaches to people of no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. It never changes, never changes. And he's an eloquent preacher. He's able to stir emotions in hearts that are not emotional. He can bring the strongest to tears with his message and his arguments can't be refuted. His appeals are forceful and there's no heart that can remain untouched or unmoved by his words. As a preacher, he'll be heard and no man can silence him. But death as a preacher also has a habit of disturbing the status quo. He habitually interrupts life. There are none that die, I've said that before, that are not making plans for tomorrow. Or very few that die that are not already making plans for tomorrow. He interrupts life and for this reason, most people hate him as a preacher. Yet everybody listens to him. But only when he's preaching. You see, when he stops preaching, people go on as if he never said a word. Nevertheless, death has every tombstone as his pulpit and he waits his opportunity to preach at every hospital, at every aged care facility, at every roadside, etc. Every newspaper prints his text, every condolence card his message. And one day, you and I will be the subject of his sermon and he'll stand at our graveside and preach to others. This is the power of death. He has a message. And I said it doesn't change. What is the message? What is the message that this preacher has to share always? Well, I could summarise it this way, simply as time is temporary, eternity is not. Time is temporary, eternity is not. So we don't need faith to believe that we will die. We all know that we will. Our question that we have in our hearts is, what will be at death? 
At death is the closure of one door, but we know that it's the opening for another that will never be shut. So what is the message for you? What's your message with respect to time and eternity? Do you know where you'll be? Do you know how you'll live? Do you have hope? Do you have hope? Real, absolute, certain hope, not wishful thinking hope. Do you know Christ? So imagine that. Imagine living your life that way. Imagine you're living your life in a way that whatever happens in your life, you have hope at death. Imagine that all things, no matter how bad things are that you go through, it will be all good at the end. Could you imagine living your life that way? Well, Paul lived his life that way. He actually said in Romans 8.18, he said, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Wow. In Philippians chapter 1, he said this. He said, imagine, imagine being stuck in this sort of a position. I don't know whether I want to die or whether I want to live. You know? Have a look at Paul. He said, for I am in a strait betwixt two. I'm in a tight, narrow place between two options. It's like caught between a rock and a hard place. I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Really important as a Christian to keep in mind why you're here. You see, See, if the entire purpose of God was simply to save you and that's it, then there's no purpose for you to be here. There's no other reason. Might as well take you home. Make sense? But here Paul says, for him to abide, it's more needful for you. You know, For us to still be here is for the benefit of others and that gives you a small hint of how then shall we live, why we are still here. And we have to understand that it's not for ourselves, it's for others. That's what Paul's bringing out here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There is a confidence to be rather absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Understand that that's true too. There's no midway point. There's no purgatory. There's no little place in between that we are, you know, waiting in some sort of a air flight holding pattern of spirits, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting. There's nothing like that. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When I close my eyes in death, I will open my eyes to my Saviour. That's where I'm going to be. So what's better? You see, we can have hope in death and that's the joy that we have. So how shall we live? This text that I'm looking at this morning is an interesting one because with what's with what Christ is saying here, there are four words that come to my mind. Four words that come to my mind. Each of those four words gives us a little bit of a taste on how we should live. And the first word is the word circumspectly. I'll explain that word to you in a moment. But to be circumspect. Have a look in the first verse there in, in John chapter 12, 23. He says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come. Now, Jesus kept before him the knowledge that his time was always going to be coming to a close. <coughs> yeah? He's always had that in mind. 
that his time was always going to be to a close. There was a purpose for his life. Have a look just down a few verses in verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. What's that cause? That cause was to die for mankind, to die that man might live. That's why he came. It's the only reason he came. God was not manifest in the flesh for himself and to glorify himself as, hey, look, I'm God and I'm walking around. He came for you. He came that you might have life, but you won't have life apart from his death. Now, it's really important that you recognise this. He was circumspect. In other words, he was very aware of his surroundings. He was circumspect. That's a good word, that, because it tells you about looking around, being open-eyed, being aware. Sometimes the word can be used as being wary as well, okay, but being aware. And Jesus was aware because here he says the hour has come. But when he was at the wedding with his, with his mother and he was invited to the wedding at Cana and she asked him and she said to him, uh, they have no wine. He simply said to her, my, my time, mine hour is not yet come in verse 4. In chapter 7 of John, so this was in chapter 2 of John, John chapter 2 verse 4, he says, mine hour is not yet come. In chapter 7 of John, his brothers tried to compel him to go up to the feast of the Jews, the Feast of Tabernacles, and telling him that he should reveal himself openly. You know, he that is like him shouldn't be hidden, but he should reveal himself openly. And Jesus says to him then, but my time is not yet come, in verse 6. In chapter 8 of John's Gospel, same Gospel that we're looking at here, we find him disputing with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees desired to kill him, remember? And then the passage actually tells us These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. But here we have chapter 12. In chapter 12, he is the one that is telling us that the hour is come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus was circumspect. He was aware of all things that the Father had put into his hands He knew all the prophecies concerning him. He knew the exact day that he was to present himself as a king. Now, this day, this precise day, was actually spoken about by Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, some 500 years earlier, to the day that he was to present himself as a king. Try and get your head around that. Daniel prophesied that it would be 490 years Jesus held the people accountable to know his coming. Remember when he prayed over Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and he says that you're going to be compassed about by armies, you're going to be starved out, all these massive atrocities are going to be happening to Jerusalem. Why? Because you recognise not this thy day. But some people did recognise it, didn't they? Remember? He walked in, we refer to it as Palm Sunday, he made an entrance. How did he come in? He came in on, the, um, on a donkey, on the back of a donkey. And he made his way in and he presented himself as a king on the back of a donkey. Also prophesied in Zechariah, spoken about in Zechariah. That's how he's going to be coming and making his way into the city on the back of a donkey. Many people recognise it. They put palm, palm branches in a way and what are they seeing? Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they knew 
They knew. So he knew the exact day he was to come. But he was also aware of something else. There was something looming here. The hour, mine hour is come. There was something looming. Do you know what it was? It was the Passover. That's what's coming up next in chapter 13. It's the Passover. Now Jesus is aware that this Passover, this Passover would be the Passover. It's the very one practice since the time of the Exodus that was actually referring to what he would accomplish on the cross. That's incredible to think about. That's incredible to think about. You see, on the doorposts, we had the blood of a lamb. But on this amount of timber would be the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. He is known as who? The lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians, it says that even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Jesus is the very Passover. He is the very celebration of Israel from the time of Exodus. That's incredible. So he was circumspect. He knew. And he knew just as in Exodus passage, in the Exodus passage, the death angel would pass over all those whose homes were smeared with the blood on the doorpost. The entry to the homes would have the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorpost. The death angel would pass over, completely pass over. And in such a way, all those who have accepted the blood of Christ then also for us, that death passes over. For those of us, our entry will be directly into eternity. You know, what an incredible link with those passages. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, move forward a little bit. It's another one of um, Paul's incredible epistles. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. He says something with respect to us and how we are to now live. If Jesus was to live circumspectly, if Jesus lived knowing the times, if Jesus lived being aware, carefully aware of those things that are around him, then there is an expectation that we are to live in the same way. It says there in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil. As Christians, we are to live and to be circumspect. We need to be as wise. Now, friends, if you think that you're being informed by simply watching and reading the events propagated on that great mushroom factory known as the modern media, then you're not being wise. You're not being wise. What does a mushroom factory do? Keeps you in the dark and feeds you rubbish. That's what the mushroom factory does. That's all it does. You want to build mushrooms? That's what you got. What do we have as a media? Exactly that. It's designed to keep you in the dark and feed you rubbish. So if your eyes are only open to that, then you've got a problem. You're not walking circumspectly. You're not being wise. You're not redeeming the time because the days are evil. Jesus' disciples asked him a question. Remember our hope. We have the blessed hope in the coming of the Lord. What was the concern for the disciples? Remember their concern? What did they ask him? They said, they said, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They were looking for a sign about his coming. And what did Jesus, how did he respond? He basically responded, watch, to watch, watch, 
Therefore, he said, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But he still instructs us to watch. He says that in Matthew 24. The following chapter, he says it again. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And yet we are to watch. We are to watch. Why are we are to watch as Christians? Because we're hoping for his return. It's what gives you courage, encouragement. You know, when you look at this little bit mad world going on, you, you have to be encouraged. Without knowing that the Lord's coming soon, you're not, not going to be encouraged. You're not going to be encouraged. I'm just going to touch on three things, and I'm only going to be very, very short because it's only part of a point of the first point. Um, we are to watch for a couple of things, okay? Actually, there's so many things that we are to watch for. I'll just give you three examples. You remember we've spoken time and again, the Bible teaches about the creation of a global government, okay? Some of you are going to say, oh, this again. Yes, yes, because it encourages to watch. We know the Bible teaches about the, there has to be a global authority over this entire world. Now, that doesn't have to happen before we're taken by the Lord, but it certainly does have to be already in place for that seven-year period of tribulation the Bible speaks about. So there has to be this, this creation. But first of all, there needs to be a creation of a global currency system, a global currency. I'm just going to give you two quotes. Have a listen to this. This is Sarah Perry, director of Visa's Strategic Investment Program. Remember what I said, there needs to be a global currency put into place. I can give you dozens of quotes, I'm going to give you two. 2001, she said this, When Visa was founded 25 years ago, the founders saw the world as needing a single global currency for exchange. Everything we've done from a global perspective have been about trying to put one piece in place after another to fulfil that global vision, to fulfil that global vision. This is Visa. Now you know why you have a Visa card. And it was put in place quite a long time ago. This is coming from her mouth. In May 2007, lecturer Robert Mundell, the father of the euro, this is the guy that actually created the euro, he said this, international monetary reform usually becomes possible only in response to a felt need and the threat of a global crisis. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. We are in a very unique time of history where the entire world is on what is known as a fiat currency. That is, a currency system that is based on nothing but faith and government decree. Up until 1971, money was backed by gold, right? In 1925, if you had a $20, if you had a, a $20 bill, US currency... It said on the bottom, redeemable for one ounce of gold. You can literally go to the treasury, hand over the $20 and receive an ounce of gold. Try and do that today. Today, the money is only worth what it is printed on. That's it. And the only reason it holds its value up is because we have faith in that currency. What are they doing? They're creating globally at the moment a currency crisis. The entire world is inflating. In other words, they're printing money, printing money, printing money, printing money. You can't keep doing that. Eventually, there's going to be a crisis. To create a global currency, there has to be a felt need. He just said it. And they're creating that felt need at the moment. So don't be surprised in the next 10 years or so if you see that there's going to be a lot more news media that's going to be talking about we need to deal deal with this crisis. There's going to be a need for a global currency. Don't be surprised. As a Nobel Prize winner, which is what he was, he points the finger at a possible trigger event. He says this, 
The global crisis would have to involve the dollar and that a world currency should be viewed as a contingency to a global dollar disaster. Remember, it's got to come out of a crisis. We need a global solution, it's a global problem. Remember? Where have you heard that before? Uh, the environmental movement? We've heard that before. Global financial crisis? We've heard those things before. Watch the creation for a global government. Express motivation of the United Nations is for the creation of a global government. One quote. Before the United States Senate in 1950, James Warburg stated this. We shall have world government, whether or not we like it. The only question is whether world government will be achieved by conquest or consent. By conquest or consent. And again, there's been books written with hundreds of quotations by people in leadership for the creation of a global government. What's the next one we're looking for? We're looking for a global religious system. One quote. One quote. Okay. This guy summarised two things. Now, he is Robert Mueller. He was the former assistant attorney general of the United Nations. In his 1982 book, A New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality, he said this. We must move quickly, as quickly as possible, to a one-world government, one-world religion, under a one-world leader. Excited? Lord's coming soon. Now, we could speak so much more about this. We could speak about... This is about what the Bible says, right? What the Bible says. We could speak about the signs surrounding the nation of Israel. We could speak about the continuing decline in moral virtue in a world identified by the dramatic increase in sexual depravity. This is what the Bible's bringing out. This will happen in those days. An increase of natural disasters, an increase of incurable diseases, an increase of famine, an increase of global inflation, an increase of technology. This is in Scripture. An increase of technology. An increase of leisure and idleness. You know, the leisure industry is the fastest growing industry in the world today. The fastest growing industry in the world. Don't just blame it on the grey nomads, right? No one wants to work. No one, <laughs> all right? not just those that are retired, an increase of death, an increase of violence and wars, perplexity of nations and people. In other words, they don't know what to do. They're confused. Inability of people to discern right from wrong. A vacuum of leadership globally. That's interesting because it's what, what's it doing? It's preparing the way for the Antichrist. There's going to be a, and there already has been actually, I can give you other quotes. Uh, there's already been a call and a desire for a one world leader, a man that will come in and fill the gap. Who is that man that the Bible's looking for? Remember? Who is it? It's Antichrist. That's exactly who the Scriptures are looking for. And the world is crying out for him. There's got to be a vacuum of leadership. Mate, you only have to look at the elections in the United States to see that there's a vacuum of leadership. Okay? That, you only have to look there. Okay? There is a vacuum of leadership. The inability of people to discern anti-God and disbelief among Christians and hostile denial of the Bible and the efforts to discredit it and all things that it speaks of with respect to the times to come. Does this sound familiar? Watch. Watch, therefore, how we are to live. We are to live with a great hope. One is the blessed hope in the Lord's coming. The other is the great hope that we have. We are to live circumspectly with respect to our own mortality. Okay, our great hope is to be with the Lord at death. And like Christ, we need to be about our Father's business. Next point here, and these points are progressively shorter. We are to live expectantly. We are to live expectantly. Here in John chapter 12, in verse 24, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat 
fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. There's an expectation there. There's an expectation. And Jesus is referring to his own death, that his own death will draw all men to himself and bring forth much fruit. There is fruit that comes from the death of Christ. That's fascinating, that his death will bring fruit that would abound. And Jesus spoke about that fruit coming through the death of him for the shedding of his own blood. It spoke about by his blood there will be a remission of sins. And he says that. He says that in, verse, uh, in Matthew 26. He says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Hebrews tells us plainly that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin in Hebrews 9.22. You see, our expectation is not dissimilar. See, for when we die to ourselves, we live for Christ. And we do so, when we do that, then fruit abounds. You see, if, if Christ's death brought fruit to him, that now all people have life in him, he speaks about a seed falling to the ground, does he not? He says that except it die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And that's what happens. You look at a seed, there's no, there's no life in the seed. There is no life in that seed until that it's buried, until water's poured upon it, and then it brings out fruit. You know? And this is the picture of Christ's death. His death drew all men to him. Now, if in that he was able to bring out life, then our death, our personal death to ourselves, living in him would bring forth fruit. It's difficult to understand. Have a look at in Galatians chapter 2. I'll, I'll just read it out for you. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I'll live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You're still in John chapter 12. Turn forward to chapter 15. John chapter 12, but turn to chapter 15. This is what Jesus says when he's speaking to those who are his. John chapter 15. We'll just look at a couple of verses, verses 4 and 5. He says this, he says, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Without Christ, we can do nothing. But we can't live to ourselves, you see. You know, there is an expectation, friends, that if we live to ourselves, we won't be bringing forth fruit to anybody else. The fruit has to abound to others. Remember what we said before, that we're not here for us anymore. I had enough of my life living for at least a good 20 years for myself. From the age of 15 to the age of 35, all I could think of was wealth. And all I could think of was creating it for myself. It was my whole desire that was all I ever wanted to do. I dreamed about it every single day. I wouldn't stop thinking about it. That's all I wanted. You know, That's bearing fruit to who? You know what? It's not even bearing fruit to me because it doesn't take a very intelligent person to have a look around at people who have abundance of wealth and are miserable. 
are miserable. Our desire is to be happy, so we think. But our happiness and our joy can only come from the Lord when we are abiding in the Lord. We don't have a long life. I don't know if you noticed that. We don't have a long life. Um, The Bible speaks about our life. It says that um, a couple of examples that it gives, it says that our life is very temporary. It's like a blade of grass. Here today, gone tomorrow in James chapter 111. It tells us that our lives shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passes away in Hosanna 13.3. It's even described as a vapour in James chapter 4. He says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. That's the lot of our lives. It is a vapour. But consider that all you do in this life has a direct correlation to eternity. Could you imagine that right now there is a link between what you do and how you will spend eternity? Jesus made that clear. He said something really interesting in Mark chapter 9. He said, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Remember when he speaks about laying up our treasures where? Here or heaven? It's in heaven. Why in heaven? Because thieves don't break in and steal. Moth and rust won't corrupt it but it would abide forever. Everything that we have, the treasures that we build up here have to have a benefit for eternity. But if you live for yourself, then that work is going to be burned up. Who are you going to leave it to? I can build castles. We had Solomon speaking about building castles and building all these great works. He did all these wonderful things. Only for what? For him to leave it to a person that didn't even earn it. You know, he ends up with nothing. Job spoke about it. He said, naked came I into the world and naked shall I return thither. I'll go back naked. The way I came in is the way I go out. But for those things that we have already done that will last for an eternity. It's a big thing to be thinking about. This is why we're redeeming the time. Jim Elliot, the young glorified saint who died for the sake of the gospel in Ecuador in 1956. He was 29 years of age. Listen, listen to what he said. He said, He is no fool who gives, who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's wisdom. That's what we're looking for. That's the treasure that we want to mount up. We want to mount up that treasure that lives, that, uh, that desires God and God alone. Um, He said something else, another interesting quote that I I, I couldn't resist but put in here. This is again from this young man, 29 years of age. He said, when the time comes to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. (laughs) I love that. Make sure that all you have to do is die. The work that we do for God, we can expect to bear fruit. The work that you do for the Lord, you can expect to you will receive abundance reward in heaven. The work that we do to bring the gospel to other people, that other people would know Christ. Do you know what it's like to actually share the gospel with someone and see eternal life almost coming into them? You know, I can't think of anything more valuable. I can't think of anything more important. But you know, everything that you do has an effect on someone's life. 
You're going to sit there and you're going to, you're going to slam anything about God. You're going to have a, an effect on that person's life. Each one of us affects people. You have influence, guys. Everybody that's here has an influence. No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, you have influence. How are you going to benefit others? It's not about you. If you're a Christian, you're so set. You're done. All right? You're good. Everything's good. No matter how bad your life is, it will never end good. But if you don't know Christ, no matter how good your life is, there is no end that's good. You will not end well. Then share this good news to people. Talk to them about the Lord. You know? That is... And it doesn't... You don't have to... It's not a matter of actually, you know, taking them from go to woe. The Bible speaks about simply one plants, another waters, but God brings the increase. All we're asking that you plant or you water. Do one of the, two, of the two. Bring those two together. Next point, we are to live sacrificially. In verse 25, he says, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it. There's a sacrificial element here. And it's not one that I want you to skip over. Did Jesus sacrifice anything for us? Think about just how he lived. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Mark, Luke and John. Consider what he'd gone through. Consider how many things he'd struggled with at the very beginning of his ministry, at the very beginning of his ministry. These are some of the things that he suffered. Here in chapter 4, it tells us of that event where Jesus is going into the wilderness and the Holy Ghost brought him there. It says there in verse 1, chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command that this stone be made bread. Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Understand that at 40 days, the body is in dire need of food. Nothing. Nothing motivates a person more than hunger. Nothing does. Nothing does. We have accounts historically of people eating their own children. Not just leather belts. Yes, they ate leather belts. They'd fight over a leather belt to eat and consume. But this is a motivation of hunger. Okay? So to be 40 days without food and to be tempted, we have here the Son of God. Can he not make a stone into bread? And yet what does the Lord say to him? He says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Faithful is our Lord in this suffering. Verse 5, and the devil taking him up into an high mountain, shewed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. I don't know about your temptations, I don't know about your struggles and your trials, but I know that the Bible tells us really clearly that you have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. 
Here Jesus is offered the entire world and he knocks it back. I don't know if you would have accepted it. I don't know if I would have denied it, to be perfectly honest. And he goes on here and he says in verse 9, And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now keep something in mind that when you are in absolute hunger and absolute need, death would be a welcome relief. Death would certainly be a welcome relief. There's a temptation there also. But notice that the devil is quoting scripture here. You know, he's quoting the Bible. Is there, an, is there a possibility that you can misapply a text? I think you can misapply a text. And that's exactly what Satan did. What I always found it really intriguing is that I looked up the passage that he quotes the scripture of those things concerning Christ. And I can tell you that at the time when I looked it up, he was looking at that a lot more deeply than I because I couldn't see that on the surface as that is a, a prophecy of Christ. Yet the devil knew it. Think the devil knows the word of God? I think he does. I think he does. Be careful in that regard. So respecting the gospel... This is what it takes to receive Christ. A dying to yourself. An understanding that you don't have the answers. An understanding that you yourself are lost. This is what is required to believe the gospel. It's not just a prayer. It's not just a prayer. It's not, it's not just a, a temporary emotional experience that gains eternal life. It's the desire to end all that you have, all that you thought about life and to count it all as, as dung, as the Apostle Paul says. To count it all as nothing, refuse, nothing worthy of pursuing and giving your life completely to Christ. That's the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice. That's how we live sacrificially. It's not this easy believism that's propagated today through the modern Laodicean church. It's the end of your life and the beginning of life eternal. It's the end of your control and the giving over of it to he who has control. It's the end of what you think is true and trusting in he whose name is truth. We are to live sacrificing all that we thought of ourselves to the one who knows all our thoughts. That's how we are to live. We are to live sacrificially. In... Um, in Romans chapter 12, he says this. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. There is an active conforming work being done within this world, pressing you into its shape. Be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Final point this morning. We are to live hopingly. We are, yes, it is a word. It is a word. I looked it up. It is a word. We are to live hopingly. We are indeed to live hopingly. 
He says there in verse 25, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. We are to live hopingly. For the last, um, for the last five years or so, a number of us have, um, from Faith Baptist Church, have gone to two aged care centres. We would go there twice a year. We'd go there at Christmas and we'd go there at Easter time. And we'd go there for sharing the gospel. So Pastor Frank or myself would deliver a message uh, and the gospel. It's always the gospel. And we would sing hymns, either at Easter time or at Christmas time. And there would always be quite a good gathering of these elderly people. And I loved doing it because there's a good chance it's going to be the last time they're going to hear the gospel. The last opportunity you know and, and to think to think that any one of them could could have that opportunity um and could slip away it breaks my heart so we would finish we'd finish sharing these hymns and uh and singing the hymns and uh, yeah, and i did my best everybody did their best and it was actually pretty good i have to admit it was pretty good um, but at the end of it once we once we'd done and everything was packed up um, a number of us would actually go, away, go around and actually talk to each of those people. And, and, and the first question I'd ask, and it, I had to ask the question because it was my only concern for them. What else can you say? How's your day? You know, I wasn't interested in how their day was. I wasn't interested about, you know, their family. I'm sure that they've got a beautiful family, yeah, maybe, you know. Uh, but some of them haven't even seen their family, so I don't want to be bringing up that. My, my only concern, do you have eternal life? So I would ask them just one question. When you die, do you know whether or not you're going to be in heaven? Do you know? Understand what I'm saying? Do you know whether or not you'll be in heaven? Now I'll give you a rough, rough statistic. One out of ten would say, yes, absolutely, I know my Saviour. I know my Saviour. One out of ten would say, I don't know. Eight out of ten would say, I hope so. Now, that hope so is the way we use the word hope so. It's not a certainty. So here we have nine out of ten people in a nursing home that don't know whether or not they'll have eternal life. So what's your next response? Is to share the gospel. Do you know that you can know? Do you know that you can know? that you'll have eternal life. And we quote the scriptures and we go through that. My only concern was that they would have eternal life. But we, we are to live hopingly. We are to live knowing we will inherit eternal life. We are to live knowing that this is a certainty not yet seen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, For I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. In 1 John 5, 3, John simply tells us the very purpose of his letter. He says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And then Jesus this beautiful, beautiful passage in John chapter 10 where he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them 
and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then verse 30. I and my Father are one. You are kept so tightly in the Father's hand, in the Son's hand, that you cannot escape, not even if you wanted to escape. This is why Christ came, that you would know you have eternal life. This is how we live hopingly, that we know we have eternal life. And tell me what you can't do then. What can't you do when you know that you're invincible in that regard? That regardless in death or in life, you have hope. How will you live your life? How will you live it? I keep saying this. I've said this before. Jesus did not come to give, to to, to make bad men good. That's not why he came. He came to give dead men life. That's why he came. So now that you have life, how will you live it? Do you think it's unreasonable? Can I ask you, do you think it's unreasonable that you live circumspectly? Could you imagine living your life being well aware of what's going on around you, looking forward to the promise of God's return, every day moving forward and seeing a convergence of events going on within the world that point to the truth that God is coming soon. Christ is coming soon. He's coming soon. Do you know that for every single prophecy that there was of Jesus coming the first time, do you know that there are two for him coming the second? Two to one. If God was true in fulfilling the first ancient prophecies which began in Genesis chapter 3, will he not be faithful in his second coming when there are twice as many prophecies speaking about his second coming? He's coming. And these are the signs of the times that he speaks about. Will you not live expectantly? Won't you live expectantly? Expect fruit that will abound to your account. Expect that when you do for the Lord that which he desires... No matter how small it is, and it could be, as Natalie plays the piano, doing that faithfully and learning. It could be you doing your work, you know, your tennis coach, even encouraging the kids in that way, but also being open to share the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world will hate you. Mark me. The world will hate you. It astounds me that the world hates you because it's not bad news, it's good news. But the world will hate you. And you will be persecuted. Paul spoke about that. He said, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You will be persecuted. You will, without question. But are we willing to live sacrificially? Are we willing to live dying to ourselves and living unto Christ? Are we willing to do that? He did it for us. But you know that in that you have eternal life. You have true life, real life. But regardless of the persecution, regardless of the sacrifice and being aware of things going around you, no matter what occurs, we live hopingly. We live hoping and knowing that when we close our eyes in death, we will open them to the Saviour. In your bulletins, there's just one account of a persecuted uh, minority of people within India. There are over 300,000 Christians today in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Korea, North Korea, 
spread amongst those people that are being killed for their faith, only for believing in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are dying for their faith. Will you live for yours? Will you live for yours? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord. Such an opportunity, dear Lord, to share the gospel, to share your word. And I pray, dear Father, that you would work continually, dear Lord, within the hearts of those that are here, that they may hear the truth of the word of God, their hearts would be pricked within them, they will believe the gospel and would live, dear Father, with that wonderful light of truth in their hearts. I pray, dear Father, that you would continue to prosper them, strengthen them, embolden them for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but most importantly, to commit their lives to that wonderful truth. I thank you, dear Father, for your work and your word within this small congregation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Paul, could you close off for us?